0: Hi, it's Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal podcast. On July 16, 2021, Pope Francis issued the motto proprio Traditionis Custodes, overturning Benedict's 2007 initiative, restoring the older rites or so called extraordinary rite of the Mass. Commonweal contributor Rita Ferrone, in her article, A Living Catholic Tradition, featured in our September issue and on the website, called it a great day for the Roman rite and for the legacy of the Second Vatican Council. She joins us to tell us why and to talk about the significance of Francis's initiative and what it means for the Catholic Church. That's coming right up on the Commonwealth Podcast. Hi, Rita. Thanks for being here at the Commonwealth Podcast.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Dominic.
0: So I suppose I want to start with a how we got here kind of discussion. There's perhaps a sense among those who don't pay as close attention as we do that Francis has undone something that existed for a long time. But in fact, it was something that Benedict did in 2007 that set the stage for this summer's motto Proprio, the issuing of Samorum Pontificum, which gave broad permission for the celebration of the Tridentine Mass. Back then, 14 years ago, you wrote a piece for Commonweal called A Step Backward, in which you explained the origins of Benedict's initiative, and in particular, how it deviated from the intentions of Vatican II's reform of the liturgy. Could you give a recap of what happened in 2007 and what led to it?
1: Well, there were really two things going on at the same time, and I find that it helps to understand both of these two prongs of Benedict's action. First of all, he was interested in reconciling the traditionalists the Society of St. Pius X, and those who were in wanting to be in union with Rome. They didn't want to be part of a schismatic group, but they wanted very much to continue to celebrate the older rites. So he was interested in making space for the traditionalist liturgy in order to reconcile these very resistant people who had problems with Vatican II and the reforms that had come from it. At the same time, there was another trend that was developing, and this goes back to the years before Benedict was pope. He had a very strong position of criticism toward the liturgical reform, and through the years he had written books about it and endorsed other people's books and discussed uh, some of the reactions to the reform in such a way that he became known as a critic of the reform. Also. There was a kind of hope that when the Tridentine rites were, quote, liberated and could be much more available to people, that there would be what Benedict called mutual enrichment between the two forms, and that this would lead to a reform of the reform, which would, in some ways, ameliorate the things that he found problematic, and that other people who were traditionalist leaning found problematic in the reform. The issue here, though, is that most of the reforming was expected to be done on the Reformed liturgy, not of the Tridentine rites, which were considered immutable. And that's one of the reasons why people were reluctant to give them up, because they didn't want them to be reformed. So part of the project was this wedge that was being inserted into the mainstream of the Church. Now, on a positive side, well, this was supposed to be a great thing. And people would discover how beautiful these older rights were and they would want to have the newer rights be just like them. But on the negative side, it was also a challenge because a lot of people didn't feel that the reform was so deficient as some people were arguing it was.
0: In your column, you note that when Benedict wrote uh, Samorum Pontificum in 2007, he invented the term extraordinary form to refer to the older rights and called the reformed rights the ordinary form. I suspect there are people uh, who don't realize that those terms came into being only then, or that there were never two forms in existence at the same time. And yet these descriptions in the intervening years uh, seem to have become normalized. What do you think the intent of choosing language like this was? And what do you think has been the effect?
1: Well, I think the choice of ordinary and extraordinary was on the surface supposed to privilege the reformed rights by saying that they're ordinary. But the way most people hear the term ordinary, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) And in fact, I believe the hidden intent was to suggest that these are two equivalent and interchangeable options. Take your pick. And that is, in fact, how people received it. The ordinary should mean nothing is taken away from the dignity of the reform. That's a fig leaf what actually happened was that ordinary was no longer considered normative, and that is precisely what Pope Francis is getting at in *Traditionis Custodes. He is saying, once again, as Vatican II did as the popes after the council did, that what the council ordered and implemented in the post conciliar years as the reform of the liturgy is, in fact, normative, and the pre-conciliar forms, the the form of the mass and sacraments that antedated that reform needed to be reformed, and now they were, so those would be set aside, except for exceptional circumstances. You know, right after the council, there were a lot of elderly priests, and they allowed them to continue to do what they had done all their lives. But it wasn't intended to be a continuing reality that would provide an alternative right for the church. That was definitely not the intention.
0: And how about terms like ancient and modern? Did they, because sometimes we hear discussions about <laughs> this sort of dichotomy too.
1: Yeah, sure. It's a rhetorical framing and it has a, a political overtone. It really does. You know, the ancient rite of the mass of the ages. Things like this are laurels that people place on these forms of celebration. And you, you have to realize that's being paired, on the other hand, with invective against the reformed rights, such as calling it a hack job or a modernist creation or not a right or irredeemable. I'm quoting those from actual essays, books that people have written in criticism of the reform, and these have become talking points for the anti-conciliar party. Now, some of the texts in the Reformed liturgy are based on ancient sources much older than the ones in the 1570 Tridentine Reform, but you'd never know that. uh, and Nobody is calling the Reformed rite the ancient rite, but there it is. There are these ancient sources that weren't available in Trent because they didn't have as much historiography as we have today. So Trent was a settlement based on what was known at the time. Vatican II, we're in a new position historically, and we still have tradition, we still have history, we have that, but the rhetoric has insisted on dichotomy that favors the 1570 settlement over the Reformed right. You know, and there's one more thing I actually, when we speak about language that I want to throw out there, there's another misnomer that's circulating, and that's the term ritual pluralism to talk about the two forms of the Roman rite. No, that's not what this is. It's not like having the Eastern rites and the Latin rite or having the different Western rites that were not Roman, such as the Ambrosian rite or the Mozarabic rite. Each of those have distinct communities that celebrate them. And, uh, you know, what you have here with two forms of the Roman rite after Sumorum Pontificum was that you have one rite that is reformed and the other rite that represents the refusal of that reform.
0: Yeah, I, I wondered how it might also play into what seems like the clericalism of the old rite, something That some writers have noted seems very attractive to some of today's younger clergy. There's clearly a place for the priest in the older rites, but where are the people of God?
1: It's a great question. Thank you for that. Francis clearly has an eye on this problem of clericalism. In fact, the recent crackdown on private masses in the extraordinary form at St. Peter's Basilica was an early sign that the wings were going to be clipped on some of this clericalist attitude. But the basic issue here is important to understand. The older rites stand in tension with the Vatican II principle that the liturgy is first and foremost an action of the people of God. And there's one way that I love to illustrate this. In the older rites, the missal starts, the rubrics for the mass, the priest being ready, the Vatican II inspired rite starts out with the words, the people having gathered. And, and there you have it in a nutshell. There are no rubrics for the people in the older Missal. And now, after the Reform, all of our rites have rubrics for the people, all of them. So the liturgy needed a reform like this because the Council focused on reviving the concept of the people of God and active participation. You know, you can't say that people didn't participate in the liturgy in the 500 years before Vatican II. Certainly they did. They did so, though, in various ways, and increasingly, they participated in an attenuated way. What the council wanted to do was to have them participate directly, not by reading along in a book, not by maybe having pious activities like the rosary at the same time. Now, the whole point of the reform was active, conscious, full participation. And so that needed to be done in order to see that this reality of participation was going to be played out, and that we would begin again to see what the ancient sources tell us over and over again, which is that it is the act of a faithful people, the priest is presiding over it, but he is not the sum total of what is going on here.
0: Maybe this is a, a this is a good lead into my next question here. You write in, in your column, you write an apparent reference to those who strongly support use of the older rites that... Tradition is not the preservation of old things. It's a vital reality guided by the Holy Spirit working through the church and its leadership. So can you talk a little bit more about tradition in this way, especially that key phrase, vital reality and the guidance of the Holy Spirit?
1: Well, I want to say, first of all, that I actually was thinking of that as a criticism of everybody, not just those who favor the older rights, because some people who favor the new rights have an antipathy to older things. And that's not a good idea either. But here's the point. There's a saying that's attributed to Picasso. I'm not sure if he actually originated it, but my mentor in liturgical studies, Aidan Cavanaugh, used to say it. And it's that tradition is not wearing your grandfather's hat. It's having a baby. So tradition, getting the faith from one generation to the next, is a kind of life process, an organic thing, and it's a lot of work, but it's not just our work. It's the work of grace, the activity of the Holy Spirit, and that needs to be discerned. And within our church's body, the charism of authority or leadership, if you will, in the church authenticates that change and helps us to see where we're going and how genuine tradition doesn't always stay the same, but it's born in new generations in ways that will lead us to what is essential from the past and provide that bridge. So consider this. The older rites do not allow women in the sanctuary because at one time it was considered more holy if women stayed out of the sanctuary they were not considered holy enough. They were profane, and the men, and especially the clergy, that was the sacred precincts, so women had to be kept out. Now, over the course of time, our understanding of the role of women has evolved quite a bit since then. Obviously, we know that. And also, our sense of, again, going back to the early centuries of the church's life, our sense of baptism, as an important way to decide what's holy, right, Uh, is something that is equally conferred on women and men. So how do we let the tradition come into the future with awareness of how this has changed? And working with that to bring out what is good and true and honorable and holy for our time. And that did include, for the reform, having women be allowed to be in the sanctuary and to undertake ministries that they had been kept out of. It wasn't until Pope Francis—this is a long process— it wasn't until Pope Francis allowed women to have their feet washed on Holy Thursday or to be instituted as lectors and as acolytes. They'd only been doing it informally before then, but this is tradition. You know, tradition is seeing how the past transfers into the future in a fruitful way. Because if you kept on doing what you did in the past, it wouldn't be fruitful in the future. I could throw out other examples, but here are just a couple. Late antiquity was a bathing culture. They had aqueducts. They had fresh water. There was all kinds of opportunities to have pools of water and people bathing together. And baptism by immersion was not a hard thing to do. You know, by the later Middle Ages, when those aqueducts had grumbled and by the early modern period, you didn't have fresh water. People didn't take baths for, for years. Hygiene was a different thing. So baptism changed from having a lot of water and people being immersed in it to having a little bit of water and it being poured. Well, you know, baptism is still water, but it had to change. So what is tradition? it's not just keeping around old things. It's finding the heart of what is important. And the central signs and symbols have remained as sacred, potent realities, and they're there in the reform. And you can find them. But if you're focusing on the externals, you're not maybe going to see the things that are more important, the water, the forgiveness, the Eucharist as bread and wine, and so on and so forth. But the early 20th century, was a time of the end of empires. The, all the empires were collapsing in the beginning of the 20th century. And there was also the collapse of colonialism and the rise of the self-determination of peoples. And so when we got to the point of Vatican II, the church really faced a moment of saying, what kind of a church are we going to be? We had internalized notions of what is grand and beautiful and honorable and good out of an imperial mindset, which had been so much a part of the world that people lived in. So what kind of a church are we going to be? And that is going to influence how we celebrate liturgy. So you can't just take a Kappa Magna out of the closet and expect it to recreate an imperial situation. However, you can cause dissonance with the gospel message by having it be more important to have the trappings of an imperial court ceremonial than to have something which reminds people of the last supper of jesus of the intimate connection of those who gathered with him as friends
0: we'll be right back with the rest of our conversation with rita farone
2: dialogue and understanding. The Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies at the University of Southern California is a global hub promoting Catholic thought, imagination, and experience. The Institute supports scholars, generates research, and helps grow the Catholic intellectual tradition. IACS is an independent Catholic research center at a leading secular university. The Institute supports free academic inquiry, respectfully engaging different viewpoints in the common search for wisdom and truth. The Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies at USC, pursuing knowledge and building faith. Learn more about the Institute's work at iacs.usc.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's iacs.usc.edu and on social media at iacs.usc.
0: I wonder, Rita, if you could briefly take up the issue of enculturation, since you write that establishing the Reformed liturgy as the unitary expression of the Roman Rite does not in any way compromise the Church's commitment to enculturation. Why do you feel compelled to point this out? What are people misunderstanding or misinterpreting about Francis's move in the context of enculturation?
1: Well, there was a particular predictable charge that was raised against Pope Francis, his modo proprio traditiones custodes, by saying that he was trying to force uniformity on the church. And how this is so unfair, because he was in favor of something that came up at the Amazon Synod that there might be an Amazonian right that would be enculturated. And so I knew that when this came about. There would be real sharp criticisms around the question of, well, you're trying to force uniformity here, and we want diversity. But in fact, here's what the situation is: there are four paragraphs in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, paragraphs thirty-seven to forty, that talk about how the Church does not insist on rigid uniformity, but cultivates and even accepts into the liturgy elements of a culture that are genuinely compatible with the Gospel this came out of a missionary context. Many of the bishops at Vatican II were in missionary dioceses, and they saw the potential for really bridging the gap between something that was a European-centered right into new countries, new regions, and new cultural spheres. And so, and it, and it and there were papal um, statements before the council which really upheld this. It is still the case that we're committed to enculturation. But the difference is now that the Reformed rite is the basis for any enculturated liturgy. So we don't start back with the rites from Trent and try to enculturate them. We're starting from the same basis. And so the Zairian rite, the rite that's celebrated in the Congo, that was the most fully enculturated rite. There were other rites that attempts were made to inculturate them, but there was a lot of resistance at the central headquarters in Rome. So since the July's Monte Proprio, there's been a lot of commentary
0: in both Catholic and mainstream media about Francis's aims and intentions. And often it seems criticism of his decision because of the damage it will ostensibly do to the church. What have you found to be some of the more outlandish, I guess, or disingenuous or just plain wrong assertions and statements? And how would you respond to these? How would you try to explain, hey, wait a second, this isn't exactly right.
1: Well, I think that I've picked up on several different kinds of responses, and each of them is different in its effect. So I'll just give an example of each one. The first one is extreme self-dramatization. You know, an example might be Monsignor Andrew Wadsworth, who is the head of the International Commission on English in the Liturgy, called the motto proprio an Adam Bohm. And he really was saying that basically this would destroy him if he was not allowed to celebrate the older rites. And t- to me, my response would be, this shows what you really think about the rites that were reformed. I mean, it would kill you to celebrate that? Was this really a life and death matter? I've heard people say how they're nauseated by the new rites, or they can't stand them. You're trying to destroy my spirituality. I and mean, This is awfully dramatized and extreme. Okay, so that's one kind of ref- comment I've heard. Another is inflammatory, pointed at Pope Francis personally, and the example I would give is Cardinal Gerhard Müller, who said the shepherd hits the sheep with his crook, and that Pope Francis proceeded without the slightest empathy. So two things occur to me in response to that. One is that this is calumny against the Pope, and it distracts us from the real issues, Pope Francis is making an argument. He is not there to offer empathy. He's there to lead the church. This is sometimes a tough job, and it's not about emotion. And so then the other response I have to that is, why are you whipping up emotions like that instead of helping people to see why the Pope has made some statements here that are wise and true, and we can all benefit from listening to them? Okay, then the third one, there are some who are crusaders for the cause. The older rites are more important to them than church altogether. And the example might be that I would highlight is Bishop Athanasius Schneider. He's an auxiliary bishop from Kazakhstan who has been very instrumental in worldwide traditionalist agitation for expanding the older rites. And he's also been very vigorously and vocally opposed to Pope Francis. And he said, he told priests they should disobey. They should just disobey the, the mode proprio. That's outright rebellion. And I think it proves Francis's point that the permissions that have been given have been used not to create a greater harmony or mutual enrichment but they've been used to widen the divergences. And now we see the terrible fruit of that in a bishop of the church telling priests to just flagrantly disregard what the Pope has asked them to do.
0: So I I think we've arrived at the inevitable point in a discussion like this. So what's next? Where do we go from here? What would you say to people listening? (laughs) What can we maybe anticipate in months, years, decades, millennia
1: ahead? (laughs) predictions. Oh, a a great question. I don't know. I think one of the things that's important to remember, because many of the more antagonistic voices on the internet who are opposed to the reform or opposed to Francis or who are advocates to the older rights as a sort of point of do or die, you have to remember that their place is magnified by their very extensive use of media. and they are actually very small. 1% of priests worldwide celebrate the older rites. 1%? That means 99% of them are celebrating the Reformed rites. But the United States has had the highest proportion of sites for this worship of any country in the world. So what that means is that they're few in number, but they can cause an outsized problem, and that we actually do have a problem more in the United States. 14 years of protecting the old rights and making more space for traditionalist thinking has indeed contributed to what is now an American problem, even though this is from a numerically small group. But if we focus on this moment as something that only pertains to them, that it's about the fate of these small, the small number of traditionalists, we're going to miss the positive content of the Pope's statement. And that is very simply, that we have to revisit, reimagine, and reclaim the foundation in Vatican II for what we do in the rights that we have. So there is a direction. And this is, in my mind, where the gold is. And that's where I hope the future will take us is that we will pay more attention to what it is that is so precious in the Reformed rites that it is worth maintaining, that it is worth agreeing with Pope Francis that this is the norm of the church, that this is the thing that's going to get us closest to the authentic faith that we wish to profess. So things like the Paschal Mystery. It, that's a theological concept of the Reform. is central to the Reform. The traditionalists d- reject that as a key to understanding the Mass. So, okay, we've got to understand what does the dying and rising of Christ have to do? What does resurrection have to do with what I do at Mass on Sunday? That's dynamite. If you start to unpack that, that's a wonderful thing. Active participation. We spoke about that earlier. The liturgy as the action of the people of God. I think people get that, but it would be good to name it. It would be good to claim it. It would be good to emphasize it more. An outward-looking direction in our journey of faith. Vatican II came up with this wonderful key uh, term, a, a pilgrim people. And I think we are now in our era of change with many people not wanting to Participate in institutional religion and so on. If we go back to the journey, if we go back to the pilgrimage, we then have a whole or arsenal of uh, tools or an array of tools to use in order to talk about what faith is and how the liturgy is with us on this journey of faith. And it's an outward-looking journey. We read the signs of the times, and we're in it together. It's not the priest alone; it's all of us. Rita
0: Farrell, I just want to thank you for being here for a deeply informative discussion. Thank you. My pleasure. You can find Rita Farrell's piece, A Living Catholic Tradition, in our September issue, out now and on our website. Our September issue includes a lot of other great writing, including Peter Steinfeld's on The Bishops, The Eucharist, and Abortion, Hannah Gold on Dylan Farrell and Woody Allen, and Clifford Thompson with a review of Summer of Soul. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.